Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thank you for listening. We are, as a population, all aging, and with that comes the challenge of cognitive loss as we get older. Kenneth Kosick is a professor of neuroscience at the University of California in Santa Barbara. I heard him speak a couple weeks ago. It was excellent. And so in addition to his research, he has also written two books on how people should approach and manage as best as they could Alzheimer's and other dementias. So he brings a wealth of experience and knowledge to us. Dr. Kosick, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Happy to be part of the podcast. There are two major questions relating to the dementias. Are they preventable or, shall we say, not inevitable? And what can we do about it once it begins? Where should we start? It's a huge area to start with. A great way to start. Well, I'm glad that you you know, modified your question a little bit at the beginning by saying it's not preventable and you know, what we can do. And the way I like to say it is, what we can do to reduce our risk because we don't have a clear definitive prevention. It's not like giving a vaccine for measles and then you're really pretty much out of the woods. However, we do have some means to decrease people's risk. And we can talk in detail about that, but just very, very briefly, those risk reduction measures fall into two categories. One are medical risk reduction. It involves knowing your numbers to be sure your blood pressure, glucose, and lipids are normal. And the other are lifestyle risks, and we can go through them. I'll just mention one at the beginning, which everybody knows, it's exercise. It's very good for the brain. You went on to say what we can do about the disease once it begins, and here's where the challenge gets really hard. We don't have an effective disease-modifying treatment for this disease. There is some evidence that these same medical and lifestyle risk reduction measures may continue to help once the disease starts. There's some evidence for that. And there is hope in the fact that there are a number of clinical trials going on and drugs are being tested that may be efficacious someday. We're on the right track, but we're not there yet. For years, we in medicine spoke of the cholinergic system as one of the bases of necessary research and treatment. The outcomes with those medications were marginal, perhaps. We seemed at least to be thinking we were going in the right direction. I read about your work, and you take a little different approach. You talk about the notion of cells that lose their plasticity, and that in turn leads to neurodegenerative disease. Can you explain that a little bit, please? Sure. One of the really fundamental underlying problems in Alzheimer's disease brains is that cells are dying. And of course, as cells begin to die, they do lose their plasticity. Their connections are being impaired, cannot learn as well. There are fewer neurons to make all the circuits in the brain needed for learning and memory. So all these things are happening, and we still today do not have a really deep understanding of how that's happening. In contrast, in the cancer field, we do have a very good understanding of why cells proliferate, why tumors grow. But to get to the same depth of understanding as to why cells die, we need some more basic research. One of the things that keeps striking me as I read information about your research is that the whole notion of cells losing plasticity might this apply to other conditions as well, like Parkinson's, Huntington's, various psychiatric conditions. Is there any thought it's expanding beyond dementia per se, but is there any overlap perhaps? Yes, and that's a, such a fascinating question indeed. There is overlap. 
but some of the proteins involved in these different diseases, they have a common denominator. They basically accumulate when cells lose their ability to get rid of them. You know, in every cell in the body, there's turnover. Proteins get old, they get impaired, and usually the cell is very good at what we call taking out the trash. In many neurodegenerative diseases, this kind of disposal of impaired proteins, old proteins, is a big problem, and that accumulation is a common feature for many neurodegenerative conditions. A lot of people also have heard and discussed the whole notion of the plaques and tau proteins. Are these still promising targets? Oh, yes, of course. There has always been this ongoing talk about the dementias may be the result of an inflammatory process. I remember a teacher a long time ago saying that perhaps the equivalent of an Advil or an, or an aspirin could ultimately help reduce the inflammation, but that seems not to be holding up, or is that simply in real basic research yet? I think the best answer is that there's a lot more basic research that has to be done. We're pretty sure that an Advil or an aspirin is not the answer. On the other hand, increasingly it's become apparent that inflammation has something to do with this disease. What is targeted by aspirin and Advil may not be the inflammatory feature that we have to go after because the inflammatory system is very, very complicated. And I think if we begin to pin this down, we're going to get another inroad into treating the disease. I would put inflammation as a, as a research priority. Are the neurogenitive conditions that we call Alzheimer's and other dementias, are they seen in all cultures? Is it throughout the world or is it more in our Western societies, if we have data to that effect? We do have data, and I sometimes say that Alzheimer's disease is an equal opportunity disease. It really affects every culture. There's no particular ethnic predisposition that is very prominent. There are subtle differences in different countries and ethnicities, but it's everywhere. And to follow up, invariably we will read about all sorts of nutritional approaches as having some preventative or mitigating, slowing down the development of cognitive impairment. Your thoughts about that? Nutrition, yes. I think we have to distinguish between slowing it down and reducing risk to get it in the first place. So I think there is pretty good evidence that good nutrition will reduce your risk. Whether or not once you have it, good nutrition will slow it down is not, still not very clear if that's true or false. Do we have any sense as to why some people get cognitive impairments and others don't? I, I've met people in their 90s who are as sharp as the proverbial tack, to use the phrase, and a lot of mm -hmm. people when they're in their 80s and 70s are starting to show mild cognitive impairments. Any idea of why that happens, or is that just, the, as they say, the luck of the genetic draw? Genetics is certainly a part of it. There's absolutely no question. But genes by no means completely deterministic. We have a whole emerging field called epigenetics. Epigenetics means how your genes interact with the environment and how gene expression can be altered by your experience, not just by the letters in the genome. So that these modifications that can go on for all of us are ways that uh, we can somehow, we may be able to circumvent what has been called genetic fate and modify our risk. Many people, and I'm sure you see this in your clinical work as well, they'll come to me and they're having mild cognitive impairments or worse. And it becomes a situation of looking at what else is going on in their lives, other diseases, other depressions. How 
can a family begin to get an, uh, an assessment of how much of a, a cognitive impairment that's occurring is a result of, for example, a depression versus something that's pure dementia? That's so important to look at, and that's why it's really useful to have a good clinician involved in case evaluation. Sometimes that distinction can be difficult for an experienced neurologist or clinician or neuropsychologist, um, psychiatrist, for someone that's experienced in this field, distinguishing depression from dementia is quite feasible, usually. And doing that kind of evaluation is critically important because the treatments are quite different. I want to jump to your two books because I find it very fascinating that someone who does such basic core biological research is also writing about how the non-physician, the, the layperson, can help reduce their risk of getting dementia. In your first book, which you wrote in 2010, I believe the title was The Alzheimer's Solution, How Today's Care is Failing Millions and How We Can Do Better. How can we do better? How, how can the non-physician or just the average person do better to reduce the risk of developing a dementia? Well, first of all, first off, thank you for asking the question in that way. It really has been very refreshing and rewarding for me to not just do one thing in life and do the basic research, which is my day job, but to also uh, do this kind of uh, work that I think is very important for the general public to try to have some more direct impact on whether or not someone will get Alzheimer's or not. And the first book really gets uh, somewhat at uh, these risk reduction measures that I'm talking about, these lifestyle measures. It, it mentions all of that. But that is much more the topic of the second book, which goes into all of those measures in detail, as I mentioned, not just the exercise, but diet and brain challenges and stress reduction, all of the things that as we go on in our conversation, we can enumerate or a person can read the book. Yeah. So I just want to give yeah. you the title of the second book, which is Outsmarting Alzheimer's, What You Can Do to Reduce Your Risk. Now I go back to you and tell me what these little steps and suggestions are, please. Yes. Okay. So for that topic emphasized in that second book, I already mentioned part one, which is to reduce your medical risks, blood pressure, glucose, and lipids know those numbers, and do something about them if they're abnormal. And then the lifestyle risks are the following. One is avoid a sedentary lifestyle. And I put that at the top of the list. Exercise is really good for you, and anyone can do it. If you have a bad knee or you get a little dizzy if you're up and around, then get help from a physical therapist to find the exercises that you can do. Number two, be sure to follow a good diet. Now, if you're on the Internet, and you read about good diets, you get very, very confused. People talk about Mediterranean diets, and there's good evidence for that. Diet is really important, but if you want to boil it down to something really simple, then avoid high-calorie food, avoid junk food. That's about as simply as I can put it. Number three, keep the brain active. But keeping the brain active doesn't mean just doing the New York Times crossword puzzle that you've been doing for the last 30 or 40 years. It means new challenges whether it's learning a language, playing a musical instrument, traveling somewhere you've never been, or even being with friends who meeting new people, which is a really very interesting and important challenge for the brain. Number four is a stress reduction. Sometimes manufacture stress in our lives. 
good to try to avoid that. There's also unavoidable stress. When really serious things happen to us, whether it's a divorce or an ill family member or loss of a job, and even for those matters, even for those kinds of situations, being able to once in a while just detach yourself, whether it's through yoga or meditation or taking a walk in the woods, all of those ways of sort of separating yourself from your trouble from time to time is an important measure. Five, the last one that I'll mention is to, this, is some, this one was a little surprising to me actually, is friends. Social isolation is not good for the brain. So having a rich social circle, whether it's one person that you're very close to or a group of people, that really keeps the brain lively and active. In listening to you, especially the notion about reducing stress, which of course is not manageable entirely in life, we don't live in bubbles, but we live in a society that has such an emphasis on youth and not preparing just the reality of getting older. I would imagine that some of the avoidance of doing these things is that people don't want to accept the fact that they're going to get older and that medicine does not yet have, nor do we have a magic pill for anything, really, but we don't have a, a mechanism for them to maintain their youthfulness, their, their strength, their vigor, and so on as they get older. Part of this is a philosophic notion of just accepting the fact that getting older and losing some of our memory is part of life. Do you see that from the people that you work with? Yes, that's a really profound question. And I think that we could do a lot better in our culture to uh, accept aging, as you say, to uh, look at aging sometimes the way this is done in perhaps some uh, Asian cultures in which age is associated with wisdom. Uh, these are um, concepts like respect for elders is, are, are very prominent. We do have a very youth-oriented culture, and that's not all bad either. Vigor is as an engine for society. So I think these kinds of ways of thinking about aging, not as a disease, but as something that is going to happen to all of us, and we want to understand it and deal with it, is a very smart way to approach the entire issue. I like the direction you're going. It's such an important and obvious, at least to me, overlap. And I'm so pleased to see that people who do the very serious research, the types that you do, are looking outside the pill. I am frustrated by how many people come and say, oh, doc, I hear about uh, Namenda or Aricept or whichever one, and I need it, and I want to talk to them about the rest of their life. And I think what we did is, personally, we drifted too far afield for years thinking that we could fix this with a pill. Didn't work, never will work. Humans aren't that simple. So I applaud you for doing both, as I said before, the book and the research. Where is research going, though? I mean, realistically, sir, and I realize you can't predict past the point, do you think we're going to be able to nix it? Do you think we're going to be able to stop the biological processes that are causing the, the impairments? I would say unequivocally, yes. The real problem in that question, you know, to say yes sounds very optimistic. But notice what I didn't say. I didn't say when. Yes, correct. Uh, that I have absolute confidence that research can practice. I mean, all the elements are there. We know the genes. We know the pathways. We know the cells. We're learning more and more every day. We have a lot of smart scientists. We can crack it. But it's just a very circuitous process in which there are lots of dead ends. And to put a clock on this, some sort of timetable, is misleading. 
one of the epidemiologic issues is the incredible number of people who are having cognitive impairments of whatever degree from whatever source. The burden on society in terms of cost is enormous. Are we putting enough money into what is really a public health crisis? No, I mean, that's for sure. We um, have here a disease that is taking an enormous toll. It's up there among the 10 top diseases, but it is uh, really the only one of the top 10 diseases that don't have not made any inroads on therapeutically at all. I know in my own family, we've had folks with very advanced dementia. And how shall I say this? It's never a burden because they are a family member, but it is a burden in all the other aspects of trying to care for them. It's, it's, it's uh, quite, a, quite, quite a challenge, quite a challenge. Yes, indeed. This has been very good, and I realize we jumped about and actually only touched the surface of many important areas, but that's what we have to do, and we want people to start thinking about it. Ken Kosick is the professor of neuroscience at the University of California in Santa Barbara. He's spoken very nicely about the general problems and approaches that we need to look at insofar as dealing with this, but it's more than that. It's not only looking at it from a purely medical point of view, but from a lifestyle point of view, which is equally as important. Dr. Kosick, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me on.